everybody, and welcome to the 395th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that goes wild for worlds like only a cardboard junkie can. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter, and my guest host this week, making his first ever appearance on the cast, is Ted Wong, aka at Sloan Stranger on Twitter. And we are both here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to diving into this week's developments. But before we jump in, I want to remind listeners that this show is produced by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering, singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Ted, welcome to the show for the first time. Uh, You are a longtime pro trader and a recent addition to our moderator crew, and have also started writing articles for mtgprice.com. And you were also in Vegas this weekend at the big MagicCon with World Championships and everything else. Can you give us a little insight into how that all went down? Indeed. Well, I had a really fantastic time at Vegas this past weekend. And um, as many of you already know from Discord, I'm a bit of a constant presence at these cons um, ever since uh, Vegas, you know, last year. So I've been to five Magic Cons at this point in a row. I would say that uh, from a visitor and attendee perspective, MagicCon Vegas definitely delivered this year in that it was twice as large, it had an expansive slate of artists, double the number of vendors, and I think plenty of entertainment uh, for all to enjoy. And all the pro traders in attendance would uh, confirm that they had a very um, awesome time just being able to engage with the community, play in some really exciting events, and check out cool merch, and uh, you know buy some great singles from all the vendors that were around. Um, while I was there, I was uh, working at one of the booths as a buyer for the first time, so I also had the benefit of uh, seeing the show from the perspective uh, as a vendor, which I think was a bit of a more mixed experience given that the layout of the show was on two floors and there were a lot of vendors in attendance. So I think from their perspective, the flow of business as compared to last year was a bit more muted. But that being said, um, in 2022, we were still just coming out of COVID. So I think there was a lot more pent up demand than before. But net net, I would say it was a very good experience for all involved. All the VIP passes were sold out. There was really, really busy activity across all the days of the show. So not much to complain about at the end of the day. Yeah, I've heard like a bunch of pros and cons uh, anecdotally from the show. I mean, you mentioned the vendors being split up across two floors. That can often be a problem at a major con if they don't do a good job of advertising where those vendors are. Anytime you have an expansive list of vendors, you're already um, strangling off some of the access to purchasing cards 
side note, the primary reason most vendors attend these things is to buy, not to sell. Um, the, the selling is just kind of, you know, bonus upside. But if the incoming buy listing is spread over significantly more vendor tables, then everybody gets a smaller piece of the pie, which is, is not ideal. Um, so I did hear some vendors complaining about that. I, I heard some complaining about that positioning on the second floor. I've certainly been involved in both, you know, a whole bunch of toy cons over the years from s- small ones. Uh, there's a thing called TFCon in, in Toronto that's just transformer stuff for the first day. And the second day is kind of a broader mix of collectibles. And then Fan Expo is our version of San Diego Comic-Con up here. And it's about the same size, about 100,000 people on the weekend. And... Anytime I've ever seen a vendor get shafted into one of the more obscure areas of the floor, they always report massive drop-offs in their sales potential. And because the showrunners are frantic on the weekend uh, of their events, they're very, very bad at re- like reacting to any complaints. Because if, especially for the major shows like San Diego Comic-Con and Fan Expo, and I'm sure the Magic Cons at this point, there's always somebody else willing to take your place if you're going to be indignant and and step off, right? So the incentives are not really lined up for the con runners to protect the pocketbooks of the vendors. I think that's a very fair assessment, James. And I think the unfortunate reality is um, everybody, I think, came to this MagicCon Vegas with the memory of what 2022 was like. And again, that setup was quite different. And just to refresh everyone's memory, that was at a smaller venue. It was all one floor. And everybody was just climbing over each other last year, almost to the point that it was uncomfortable. So I think this year, everybody was so keen to have a booth and to be able to buy. And then when you see that gosh, you're really not getting half your flow because how the floors were set up is that the ground floor where I was at was the player area and the command zone where um, people were actually playing magic, whereas upstairs was where where all the what I'll call fun activities were, like game nights or the merch store or the artist alley. So you have this situation where you have certain attendees who can just end up spending most of their day upstairs and then they're only attending for one day. They don't have time to go to the other floor. And you really do miss out on a lot of traffic which would otherwise be uh, potentially captured by the same vendor. So I think it's something that you hope that the organizers, which in this case is Repop, will learn next time. And I think what made it a little bit more challenging, this go-around for vendors, is that in Philadelphia MagicCon, which was in February this year, there was the same split-floor thing going on, which many people gave feedback on. But I assume it was probably too late to do anything about Vegas, because these cons are planned way in advance. And I assume that this venue was locked in and probably they couldn't do anything about it. So again, to your point, James, uh, the organizers are running around trying to put on the best show they can. And sometimes the vendors pocketbooks and their priorities probably just are a little down on the list as compared to just the whole experience itself. Yeah, I, I did hear that the the ADH play zone was better than in some of the earlier cons right after the, you know, COVID restrictions were lifted, where people had complained that they it closed early. I think it, it was open until midnight or something this time around. 
That's right. It was open until midnight, so you were able to play and to buy and sell. Um, I was in one of the booths uh, on the ground floor that was open until midnight. I was doing buys until 11 p.m. on Friday and Saturday. So, yeah, it it was very active. Gotcha. All right. Well, that's uh, good information uh, coming out of the con. Do do you have anything to to add in terms of the Black Lotus package that I, you know, the hyper premium package I know you've been paying for? Because that one's not cheap, right? No, it's actually um, including taxes over $700. Um, wow. I have been a Black Lotus uh, badge buyer uh, for four Magic Cons in a row, um, all of them this year. A- and to be clear, I think for everyone's benefit, one of the principal reasons I do it is because uh, the badge grants you um, early access, usually an hour or an hour and a half before the show floor opens. And what ends up happening is that on the first day, you get to line up at the merch store, get your business done, and just move on with your life rather than lying up with the general, what I'll call attendees, because once that line forms, you can end up losing hours in the line as you're trying to pick up merch. So I've just kind of learned with practice that there is quite a bit of uh, serious benefit to that. I think the problem with the Black Lotus badge is that the value proposition has been quite challenging for a while in that last year in Vegas, um, everybody got the big shock and surprise of receiving four 30th edition packs, which as everyone knows, carries an MSRP of $1,000. So you came out of the gates uh, being positive EV, right, on the badge. Right. Everybody bought the same badges for Philadelphia expecting similar something similar and that was a complete letdown and then throughout the course of the year they just seem to have added and perks here and there you know giving you breakfast giving you some extra packs trying to in some ways make up I think for the significant dollars that um, have been spent and what I would say is and I think a lot of the pro traders would agree as many of them bought the VIP passes as well it's pretty hard to justify the value except for but for the fact that you're getting the early access because all you're getting is a backpack, a nice fancy mat, a bunch of collector boosters and in this case we got like a cool CGC graded 10 slab of a random card at a Wilds of Eldraine. It could be a common or uncommon, could be a bulk rare. So when you add it all up you're nowhere close to $700. And I think you can view this a couple of different ways, which is the organizers just don't care because they realize it's the same whales buying the batch no matter what. It, 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 you think they seem to care because they seem to tweak the formulation around the package con after con, but it's never, I think, really struck the right balance yet. And I assume they will be getting a lot of complaints after this Magic Con. Yeah, I mean, I think that the fair way to sell a $700 badge is to give people a list of exactly what's going to be included before you get there. And Mm -hmm. some of the the wild cards are how much is the extra hour on the floor going to be worth in terms of potential arbitrage opportunities or getting cards cheaper than, you know, from a vendor who's got them underpriced or something that you're going to be able to leverage to make up some portion of the badge. What is the merch booth going to be worth at, show x versus show y because you and i talked about how the con in i'm not sure if it was philly in february that included all the phyrexia all will be one merch two or three of those things did very well on ebay after the fact and on facebook etc whereas with this con it's you know still a question mark as to whether the hockey jerseys are going to make anybody any money 
definitely. I agree with that assessment for sure. All right, moving right along here, we've got the metagame we can review. And as follow up to the events of MagicCon Las Vegas, the biggest thing going on at that event was Magic Worlds. This is a huge standard event. Um, huge, I guess, in, in terms of importance, not in terms of size, because I believe the total number of participants was something like 48, mm-hmm. something like that. It's a relatively small pool. I'd have to go double check that number. But this is the people that have qualified through winning the Pro Tour and various events on Arena and so forth throughout the year and uh, are you know the top point gainers for the last calendar year. And they're coming in here trying to get the big prize money. This was a draft plus standard event, so I think it was three rounds of draft and then six rounds of standard each day, and then the top cut to top eight for the Sunday. Yep, that sounds about right. And our winner taking this whole thing down was Jean-Emmanuel de Praz. Uh, uh, I think he's out of France, if I'm not mistaken. And yep, he was sure. playing Esper Rafine. With four Rafine Scheming Seer, three Fairy Mastermind, and three Shieldred the Apocalypse. This was also the second place list and the eighth place list. Very minor adjustments between all of the above. I was a little stunned to go see uh, what the current price tag on, on Rafine was. Not only has the results from Worlds had little to no effect on Rafine. But Rafine, despite being basically the most important mythic creature in standard, I mean, maybe it's Shieldred, but Rafine's probably number two, and has been for the better part of the year, is a $2 mythic. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty shocking given that I think we've seen this, we've seen Rafine pop up in many standard lists, and we've seen Rafine play out in EDH. It is a very powerful creature with a very nice connive effect, and when paired together with, you know, some of the other elements of this list, I mean, it it is a force to be reckoned with for sure. It it just goes to underscore, though, that we're in just a totally different era now. Six, seven years ago, you know, Rafine being three of the lists in the top eight and standard as a four of Mythic that was printed not this year, but the year before, you would be ready to see that jump to 10, 15, 20, 30 plus dollars. And here we have it just languishing at $2. Almost nothing that's on our list in the top paper movers this week has anything to do with the, the world's results. And it really puts the exclamation point on uh, a discussion point I've been tabling in the discord for some time now which is that i think the product mix for magic is out of sync with the current play patterns we are you know there's there's been a a a solid shift towards edh over the last five years there's no doubt about it uh everything from commander legends to commander masters constant flow of pre-con decks and uh and so forth Pretty much every set has something for the commander player to chew on, and everybody pretty much agrees that that is the dominant, most important format for Magic. But the reality is that the standard sets, the main, which are called that because it used to be the most important format, are still designed around a mixture of standard and draft. And while draft is is still certainly an important portion of the Magic community, more and more of that is by design shifting into the sphere of arena or, you know, still the people that are, are lollygagging over on Magic Online. Whereas standard locally, I hear anecdotally all the time that it just fails to fire. So 
to have this format be set up at, at Worlds and nobody really didn't didn't really feel like the you know quote unquote the room was humming. You know, you're watching social media over the weekend and the level of excitement is very limited to the people that are closest to the participants or are spikes, you know, long term spikes in their own right. It was I tuned in for a little bit to watch to see if Reed Duke was going to you know make it to uh, his second finals in, in the last couple of years. Uh, I think he finished top four, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, that would have been pretty cool because, you know, the players that you know from way back, you tend to identify with a little more. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I just felt disconnected from this whole thing. And it's not that the format seemed like there was anything wrong with the format it looked like there was tons of good interplay here i mean in third place we had azoria soldiers we had a golgari aggro uh build with four mosswood dread knight and three children in fourth five color control lists with four archangel of wrath two atraxa and three or four copies of invasion of zendikar we're in fifth and sixth and then bant beanstalk control with four the wandering emperor four beanstalk and three sunfall was in seventh i mean that's a looks like a very mid-rangey standard that would probably be a lot of fun to play and very skill testing. I would agree with that. And I think what's really strange about standard is when I look at these lists, James, I actually know all these cards, right? Because uh, I've interacted with them in other formats, particularly EDH. And these are all great cards that are you know being put into these various lists. But to your point, I know nothing about the standard metagame. I don't play standard. And even if I wanted to play standard, um, my local game store happens to be Cool Stuff Inc. And I go any Friday, there is no standard to be had. It is an EDH room. And I think that, again, uh, just underscores and what you just said which around you know the disconnect between the product and how it's set up with what players are choosing to engage with and that is something that i think wizards will have to contend with and figure out you know how to address because the disconnect of standard from where players want to engage and where they want to go is certainly going to be a theme that we see play out in the coming years and, and certainly has me wondering, like, what the state of modern will be in paper by the time we get to Modern Horizons 3 next summer, because I think it's undoubtedly going to be a blockbuster. They have been so far. Mm-hmm. But is it possible they're going to sell a little less because some people have just stopped playing Magic and Paper? Or, or they're playing Magic and Paper via EDH and drafting on Arena, but they aren't doing much else. I mean, I think, I that, think... I think that is more and more becoming the 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 standard model so uh looking at the modern challenge on magic online pretty cool deck took took this one down this was lonus combo which has popped up on our radar a couple of other times over the summer three lonus uh cryptozoologist four academy manufacturer four chatterfang four delighted halfling four samwise gamgee four quarter calling four collected company to go get your various combo pieces what a what a nasty masterpiece of creature combos this looks like. Definitely. I think when I look at this list, it's almost like the best of the Modern Horizons creatures that have tokens interactions all put together and with all these interesting combo lines that exist. So it just looks like a lot of fun to play and um, seeing it take down this modern challenge is definitely a bit of a treat. <laughs> you know what's funny here is that Urza's Saga, there's two copies, 
not the full four, in the land base can only go get Witch's Oven or Haywire Might, if I'm not mistaken. Is Gingerbread Cabin an artifact food? It makes a food, yes. It makes a food, correct. Correct. If you have three or three or more forests, it's it's the the poor person's uh, mystic sanctuary. Uh, there you we get, go. You get food instead of instants and sorceries back on top. So anyway, uh, Lonus not dead in this meta, and certainly had plenty to contend with here because you can't claim that they didn't run into scam since Black Red Scam was second, third, fourth, and sixth. Probably the most dominant week for scam that I have seen in the challenges all summer. Uh, we've seen a couple more where they were, I think, three of the eight. I'm not sure I've seen more than one where there was four. The card of note here that gives them another little boost is four uh, not dead after all, which is at a Wilds of Eldraine. This is the latest return it from the graveyard with a plus, plus one, plus one counter on it. Uh, and I believe that's the Wicked Roll, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. The Wicked Roll, which gets attached to the creature. Mm-hmm. Right. So they get plus one, plus one. And what's the other upside for Wicked? I think it's when it dies, each of the opponent loses a life. So it drains ah, them as well. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's just like a bonus one, ping, one point ping over the cards that they were previously using in the slot. Yep, definitely. I mean, it's definitely a great card. I think my what was I think surprising to everyone when this card was spoiled was, does Scam really need another one of these spells? Because they've already <laughs> yeah, got really. a couple versions of it <laughs> already. Yeah, they, they have three options. They could run 12 if they wanted to. Uh, another deck that can make use of that, but what doesn't doesn't anymore is Black Green Yogmoth because now they have three copies of Agatha's Soul Cauldron. And Aspiring Spike has been going absolutely apeshit on Soul Cauldron. I think he's tabled maybe 10 different brews with it lately. And there are a virtually unlimited amount of things you can do with this artifact. And so I got to say, I'm starting to question whether my cell call on it is going to be prescient come the holiday season. I suspect it still will because it's hard for almost anything to hold up in the $45 to $50 range. But Agatha's could be the real deal in modern. It could be, you know, post up in at least black-green Yawgmoth on a regular basis and then also be seeing fringe play in a bunch of tier two and three decks. I think it is, when you read the card, it is designed to be broken, right? It is combo-centric, and I think it is going to be a card that brewers will want to keep experimenting with until they find uh, the most creative and interesting ways to take advantage of it i agree with you i still think it is the sell call is right the values are very high for an imprint standard mythic but again unless it finds a natural home across multiple formats like the shieldreds of the world i i don't think it would make sense for the price to stay that elevated. It's certainly still one to keep very close track of, though. Currently at $49 market price with 67 listings near Mint on TCG Player. Finishing up this top eight, we've got uh, four-color Omnath in seventh with three, the one ring, four Omnath, five, uh, four Solitude, and three Endurance. We've also got Mono White Hammer with three Emeria's Call rounding things up. So relatively straightforward with Black Red Scam, I think everybody would agree, being the dominant force in the meta at present. 
Looking at the top paper movers, we'll kick things off with Maskwood Nexus out of Keldheim. Uh, certainly, cards from that set were held back by a tremendous amount of Keldheim palettes being filtered through the gaming company and other big TCG player sellers uh, that created massive walls <laughs> multiple times. But we still see this stuff starting to edge up. I mean, Maskwood Nexus is in 81,000 decks on EDH Rec. And it slid up 29% or so from 350 to 450 this week as a result. We also have Ondu Spirit Dancer out of Commander Masters going 11 to 15, 36% gains. That's going to be Ariette, I would imagine, that's moving that one. I think also, James, um, it interacts very nicely with the Enchantments Commander from Commander Masters, Anicthia, which I think is not a top 10, but is still one of those floating close to the top right now. Um, and Enchantments have always been, I think, a popular um, archetype within EDH. And I mean, getting a copy of an enchantment, how can you argue with that right <laughs> yeah it's a 3-3 three, three for 5 core cleric whenever an enchantment enters the battlefield under your control you can create a token that's a copy of it so yeah if you're an anakthea that could be any number of different things in the ariat decks that's going to be roll cards mm-hmm. and and you know doubling up on your smothering tithe or your uh protection rackets certainly sounds fine to me uh, yeah, Absolutely. so Spirit Dancer gaining, getting some pressure and gaining some momentum. We've also got Court of Garenbrig, one of my early uh, star picks for EDH purposes, going 5 to 725. This is just regular copies. It's 45% uh, gains on the back of it, just being a strong EDH card that I think is being targeted early. It's, it's not showing up as even the top five from, from this set so far. I think the top five cards... For Woe on EDH Rack are Stroke of Midnight, which I told the Pro Traders was going to see heavy play, and they told me it wasn't good enough because it couldn't target lands. And I said, yeah, this... <laughs> the number of times I've beast within the land versus a problematic Ristic Study or Commander is is fairly large gap. Moonshaker Cavalry in second, Beseech the Mirror, Obira Dreaming Duelist in the Fairy Decks, and then Knight of the Sweet's Revenge in the four or five different commanders related to food that you can build at present. So, yeah, uh, this is a, a little further down the list, but we've pl- we've played with it in our games, and I think you and I both agree it's going to be amazing in the Counters Matters builds, the uh, Atraxa creature counters, the Ginny phase of the world, and so forth. Yeah, I think of all the courts that were printed, it is by far the standout, and I think we're just going to see that... Uh, receive a positive reception I, I think there's no argument that it is just a fantastic card you know at three mana cost so uh looking forward to see that post solid results and it have a greater uptick with index you've also got virtue of loyalty one of the mythics out of out of wilds of eldraine this is the one that makes a uh 2-2 vigilance knight creature token for one and a white, and then if you can cast it as an enchantment on five mana, at the beginning of your end step, you put a plus one, plus one counter on each creature you control. In exactly the same way as Court of Garenbrig, you and I are going to put this in our Ginny Fey decks mm-hmm. for EDH purposes. They all get bigger and they all untap. Are you kidding me? So now you can, in Ginny Fey, you don't need to make the Vigilance dogs. You can just make the cats and untap them at end of turn. Completely. I think this is just such a, this is so much potential, I think, in a lot of what I'll call token go wide strategies. And that untappability cannot be underestimated. Super nasty to play this into the Andu Spirit Dancer as well. Yes. 
Yes, yes, for sure. Plus two, plus two, and untap them twice would be real nice in my guy in my Saint Traft build, where I can often tap in response to make a bunch of creatures, and then get, have more creatures catch tokens uh, counters as a result. That's uh, just going to get completely out of hand. We've also got the so sorry, virtual loyalty went eight to twelve for the record, fifty percent gains. Uh, I'm ch- checking whether it's seeing significant standard play. It looks like it has been in Esper mid-range, Mono White Aggro, and Orzov mid-range builds. The Azorius Soldiers deck is running it as well. And so that's, you know, multiple of the decks that showed up at Worlds in the top eight uh, running copies of this card. And, you know, it could be could be one of the mythics that trades some value off with Agatha's Soul Cauldron with this rising up towards 20 and Soul Cauldron coming down. Uh, if Soul Codron doesn't see much in the way of standard Pioneer or modern play, or, or not enough to prop it up. We've also got Shieldred's Edict promo copies. Uh, these are the ones that come out of the promo packs you can get at your local LGS. Foils going 13 to 20. This is multi-format usage. It's just a very flexible card. I see this played against me on Arena and Historic all the time. It's seen play in Standards. He's playing Pioneer. You see it pop up in some modern decks here and there, and it's certainly you know a reasonable card in EDH, although maybe not your best removal option in a format that has easy access to everything. But uh, yeah, still still looks like it's going to do a lot of work in Constructed just because of its ability to get rid of token or non-token or Planeswalkers. Uh, very flex. Yep, very high utility. Uh, we've also got Ristic Study Confetti Foil. Here's an interesting case study. This is the, you know, people keep talking about how cards are overpriced um, on pre-order and that most of the time you're supposed to wait to buy them later. You know, we're talking about cauldron, you know, can this cauldron come down to 20 to 30 by Christmas or whatever. But on the flip side, we've seen things like the original Jeweled Lotus Foil Extended Arts from Commander Legends, or for instance, the One Ring Foil Extended Art when it was ultra super rare in July, taking off pretty quick if the things are S-tier staples in multiple formats and the demand level is just so, so high that it, it... that it incentivizes both dealers and players to get in early, and the continued demand props up the price and holds it up nice and high. Here we have the Ristic Study Confetti Foils going three from three fifty about a week ago to five seventy five, and I think the actual the lowest priced copy is closer to six hundred or seven hundred now, and it's the only copy listed near mint left on TCG Player at all. Yeah, I mean. These cards look great in hand, and I know that the anime art is not necessarily to everyone's taste, but I think there's no doubts that it does appeal to a solid segment of the population, and this is the rarest treatment that it comes in in Wilds of Eldraine, and they're just very hard to pull, and I think if you're going to want to bling out your deck and add some spice to it, this is the card you will go to. And in many ways, I'm not surprised that it is carrying you know this much weight because if there is going to be a splurge on a confetti card, this is going to be it, right? What other what other card are you going to um, see uh, consistent use for, and that will carry the demand? Yeah, exactly. So I'm curious to see what will happen now because it's not that easy to pull these from packs. Uh, Wilds of Eldraine is looking like a popular set, but not an ultra-popular set. I don't think it's going to be Kamigawa Neon Dynasty level. And so, you know, will this float back down? You know, with one copy left listed on TCG Player, kind of, it's it's just question marks, right? 
it's hard for Bylist to pull enough of these in to to push it back down. So I could see it floating back down towards 300, but you're going to have to show me the inventory to justify it because otherwise it could be like the, you know, the foil extended our jeweled Lotus, which granted was out of a more expensive set, but it's not, it's not out of a more expensive set of collector boosters. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the gap on those isn't that large. So if you can only, if you need, you know, a couple thousand packs to find one of these things, maybe it can hold the $500 to $1,000 price point for a while. Take this data point, um, I think, as you will, but during the whole weekend that I was buying in my booth, I did not come across a single copy in all the buys of uh, the Brissick Study Confetti Foil. In fact, I think we only came across a couple Mythics. And in fact, this was one of the cards that when I was walking around the floor hunting for additions to my personal collection, I was looking for one, and I did not see a single copy in any booth. I mean, I'm sure someone picked them up or traded for them as the weekend went on in Vegas, but that was just kind of my what I'll call casual observation during the weekend, which is that this is a card that is very popular, along with the other what I'll call um, popular enchantment mythics in the set and confetti treatment, right? Like a smothering tithe or a doubling season. Those were just very, very rare, very short in supply. So I can see a state in the world in which this carries a very high price i can't speak to whether it will be a thousand or eight hundred or versus five or six hundred but i can see it staying at this level for a little while until enough gets cracked and for there to be you know some supply to bleed back into the market it also puts a question mark on whether you know doubling season and smothering tide they're going to be the next dominoes to fall down that path because those are also really big deal cards they're the they're currently two thirty and one fifty or so respectively yep. in confetti mm-hmm. foil versions. They both have about thirty ish listings. Smothering Tide is more like thirty five. Doubling Season is more like twenty seven or something like that. There's also Omniscience, mm-hmm. at you know with a similar number of listings and a market price of about one twenty five, with arguably the best art out of all the available options. Definitely, uh, the Omniscience is very nice looking. So. Definitely a class of cards to keep your eye on, this subset of confetti foils to see how the market continues to respond as the as the fall drags on and we get pulled through, you know, three or four more hype cycles that may distract people. Uh, we've also got the Hall Breach Surge Foils out of the 40k premium decks, 750 to 1250. That's surge foil targeting being an ongoing thing all year long. One of my picks last week was Asterion, the decadent foil uh, etched version out of Commander Legends Baller. Battle for Baldur's Gate going five to nine dollars, pretty much exactly as called. Keep in mind, some of our pro traders got access to these at a dollar. You know, we had people that picked these up at seventy-five cents, a dollar, dollar twenty-five, buck fifty. They were a little earlier in on the cycle, but when I looked at this last week, it just seemed to me like there were still twenty, thirty, forty, fifty copies left floating around online in North America, and the people that grabbed them were probably going to do all right because Asterion is just getting more and more popular. I've seen a whole bunch of people playing me on Arena this week using the uh, the avatar for Asterion, which just signals to me that there's a huge crossover between the people that are currently playing Baldur's Gate three and and the Magic players. Yeah, I snapped off a bunch of these. Um, some of the remaining, last few remaining cheap copies in Europe, you know, through card market. So that was uh, definitely a good call last week because I think my entry point was like in the two to three dollar range, and I'm pleased to see that within a week or so we're pushing up, <laughs> you know, well beyond that already. 
Last two uh, items at the top of the top paper movers chart are Ariette cards. Ariette is still the top commander of the week, although Atraxa and I think, let me just double check, Alela, Rowan, Hilda, and Atraxa are not far behind, all somewhere between 500 and 900 decks. Ariette above them all at 898. Underworld Coinsmith out of Journey into Nyx, foils going 5 to $11. Uh, 120% gains as in kind of auto include an Ariette, and then Ghoulish Impetus going three to nine dollars, 200% gains also an Ariette card. And as you mentioned, some of these uh, are also reasonable to play in Anakthea. Yep, definitely. And I think we actually discussed Ghoulish Impetus uh, recently, so yep, glad to see it uh, picking up steam. Moving on over to the Top Magic Online Movers of the Week. We got Urza Saga out of MH2 going from about 30 ticks to 40 ticks. 33 to 34% gains there on back of constant modern and EDH play. Force of Vigor likewise going about 13 ticks to 18 ticks. 40% gains. And then wrapping things up, we've got Recruiter of the Guard. Uh, it's a conspiracy card, but I think it's only available in Treasure Chests. So maybe there was a shift in the drop rate of these in Treasure Chests going 5.5 ticks to 9 ticks, 62% gains. Uh, when was the, are you still playing Magic Online these days? Not really. Um, I used to be active and I used to play, you know, Arena as well. Nowadays, it's just uh, haunting the EDH <laughs> channel with you guys on Discord. Have you bothered to sell out your Magic Online account? I did. So I am not um, in um, MT. I'm not in Moto at all. But, um, you know, I, I do like the older formats. So I am very tempted to get back into it uh, nowadays. One of the one of the things that is, you know, anecdotally signaling to me that the, the days may finally be numbered over there is that my father finally switched over to arena. And oh. this is a guy who has been cashing out sets on Magic Online since the mid 2000s, like, like 2004 or something. Whenever the first time you could cash in sets on there was, like, he cashed in foil seventh sets. Wow. <laughs> on Magic, on, on Moto. So for him to finally give up the collection and move over to Arena, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a milestone, that's for sure. Moving on over to cards to watch, gonna you know with with the way things are going with all the reprints, we're definitely gonna have some some more sell calls mixed in here. And based on the news that we got about what exactly is included, confirmed for the Lord of the Rings holiday release uh, slate that was confirmed as part of the events at Vegas this weekend, the foil extended arts of the. Uh, rares and mythics, things like the One Ring, things like uh, Palantir of Orthanc, etc., that were very, very hard to come by in July because they were only, oddly, available in the bonus packs that came with the Lord of the Rings Commander decks, are now being set up to be re-released with the same art and border, but Surge Foil. Yep. So if you believe that Surge Foil is above Foil Extended Art, and there's not really much reason to believe otherwise, then anybody who paid $1,000 for a Foil Extended Art, the One Ring, might end up in tears. I think that is a very fair and correct statement. 
the everybody knew that there was going to be some level of reprint in this holiday release and I don't think anyone quite expected the news that we got, so I think Yorkel is definitely the right one because uh, holding those for any time beyond now is probably a bad idea because we're about to be inundated with some fancy new treatments, you know, for those very cards. Yeah, because it looks like... I'm just looking over the the percentage inclusion of these surge foils, and there's zero doubt in my mind that the surge foils for the foil extended arts are going to be, you know, significantly easier to find because surge foil extended art rare or mythic rare has its own slot in these CBs. Eighty six percent of the time you're getting a rare, and fourteen percent of the time you're getting a mythic. So in a you know twelve pack box. You're, you're going to have a pretty decent shot at a foil extended art one ring compared to the very low probability of pulling one of those out of a sample pack earlier this summer. Now, we'll talk about the even crazier decision they made in a little bit, but the, the top line on it is even worse than the foil extended arts is the Realms and Relics Surge foils. Mm-hmm. Because those ones, they're just reprinting and I ran the math because they told us what the drop rates are on certain cards in the holiday boxes. And the, whenever they do that, and you know how many serialized cards total they are offering, you can reverse engineer exactly how many there are. So yeah. the Realms and Relics are all getting double rainbow serial foils in this product. And that's new. If they had just done that, it would have made perfect sense. There's 100 of each of those, and there's 30 of them, so that means they printed 3,000. Mm-hmm. And if those 3,000 drop just below 0.2% of the time in the CBs, then that means there are exactly, or very close to it, 1.5 million CBs, which is 125,000 new collector booster boxes. And from that, you can figure out that each of the surge foils of the Realms and Relics cards are getting 6,300 fresh copies printed. And we originally assumed there was about 1,500. So I saw somebody saying online, I think it was Ben from SCG or something, that there was like eight times more. By my math, you're getting about a little over four times more versus the amount that existed previously previous in the summer. I think that is still, whether it's 4X or 8X, James, I think that's still a little bit of a punch in the gut, right, to all those who went out trying to hunt down these surge foils and get their fancy ancient tombs and great henges in this treatment because it's a baffling decision, and we can talk about it more uh, in our next topic, but it really, I think, was probably the most shocking news of the weekend in Vegas. This was not on anybody's bingo card (laughs) for the holiday edition we'll dive into that a little bit more first let's hear about your first card to watch what do you what's on your your mind here so um similar to the theme that we just discussed regarding the risk study 
confetti foil on top paper movers. I have chosen the Parallel Lives confetti foil, which is a mythic out of Wilds of Eldraine. It's on the bonus sheet with um, cool anime art. And as we all know, um, token decks are the thing, you know, within EDH, and you see Parallel Lives in over 90,000 decks. It is currently um, in this very, very fancy treatment, which I would argue is probably the rarest version of the card, available short of um the judge foils which came out i think last year it's at 75 dollars and there is i think just over maybe 30 copies on tcg right now my view is this is a card that sees a significant level of play it's not quite an s tier staple like rustic study but the 75 dollar price point it just seems you know far too low and my call is that within six months as people move on from this hype cycle and some of these copies drain out as people um bling out their decks and improve them we will still see this naturally push up from 75 um towards you know 125 dollars and i think this is a little bit behind i think rustic study in terms of just just that trend i think if we were at a hundred and 50 listings or something on tcg player i would be more timid about these but given that parallel lives is at 32 listings necropotence is at 28 bitter blossoms at 17 because the blue black fairies decks are all buying their copies like multiple of these could end up in in very good position i mean blood moon is still you know included all over the place in in modern decks and grave pack defense of the heart kindred discovery land tax and sneak attack all getting down pretty low Mm -hmm. and would would not surprise me to see the anime lovers push this up on a combination of scarcity and a love for the art style here the likewise i i'm looking at ristic steady confetti foils themselves instead of trying to guess whether it's going to end up a 450 550 650 750 plus card based on the fact that it's just it's been cleaned out Mm -hmm. i'm going to go with the the nimble sidestep to arbitrage and realize that over on card market in europe where there's almost always a weakness on these premium cards until they get their act together and ship them over to the u.s you can get the rustic study confetti foils for last week's price you can still get them around 300 euros which is good with shipping going to be somewhere around 350 us so if you're interested in getting one don't pay the aftermarket prices in north america right now get yourself set up on card market or get somebody in the pro trader discord or somebody you know in europe to hook you up and take a package for you and you might have a shot at minimum you know if it floats back down to 350 from whatever the price is supposed to be now you're not in the worst possible position it's still risk study confetti foil there's still very few of them it still has a shot to be a gainer moving forward even though you can assume they're going to keep giving you rustic studies like that's that's kind of a an assumption that is safe to make at this point that these s tier things are going to get a reprint every two years minimum but you have a potential upside here to get a double up minus fees and shipping which could be great maybe buy three or four of them keep one for yourself and pay for it by flipping the rest Definitely. I think those are, given what we've seen within in the North American market and what I saw in Vegas, I think if you can snap a couple copies at $300, there's some significant dollar upside there um, in the near term. All right. What's your final call here? 
So this one is an interesting one in that, um, as we all know, Lotus Petal um, recently got a reprint. It is being um, handed out as a promo. Um, it was first, I think, debuted at Gen Con when I think Gavin gave them out to um, various attendees of the event. And this particular foil etched Lotus Petal um, is, uh, I guess, the identical art to the FTV Lotus Petal, which is, I think, the card that I am choosing as a sell call. And the reason I'm saying that is we are about to be inundated with copies uh, of this fancy treatment Lotus Petal in the market. Not only were they handed out at Gen Con, they were handed out at uh, Vegas Magic Con, and there is also going to be a massive supply of them coming to LGSs uh, this month and next month, I think, for attending various FNM type events. The FTV Lotus Petal is, I think, that fancy treatment that exists in the original art, and I think it's the only premium version below the masterpiece version which is way way much way way more expensive and the ftv lotus petals are like a hundred dollars i expect those to be cut to come down significantly i think in the near term because i think for the longest time uh, many edh players were relying on that version to bling out their decks and i think they're in for a little bit of a uh rude awakening in terms of those prices because those are starting to come down and certainly when i was doing buy listing at my booth in vegas we revised uh, our view on that uh, pretty quickly so if you have spare copies of that lying around i would recommend you exit while there's still a chance to on tcg because once the full freight of those full etched lotus petals um come to market uh, i would see i i don't think there's going to be much demand uh for this at the price point that you expected them to be at historically i think it's going to be one of those situations where there's a premium version that's a very low supply that's from way back down the road it's going to still hold the price but it's hardly ever going to sell correct because it's, i think that's the only right. person that's interested is completing a collection so they need a specific version they're not just looking for a nice lotus petal and what you're saying is the people that are looking for a nice lotus petal can now get arguably a better foil treatment mm -hmm. especially for competitive play purposes you know if you're putting these in legacy you want foil etched you don't want ftv foil which curves like crazy in any amount of humidity so yeah i think this makes perfect sense i think it's also worth flagging this you know the story behind the masterpiece version of lotus petal that was like one people one of the masterpieces you, you could pull back in 2017 that people were absolutely complaining about back in february of 2017 so little over six years ago they could be found for 70 bucks and now they they're at 500 and it mm -hmm. actually does change hands at that level every you know once or twice a week once every week once every two weeks on tcg player and on the, the various other platforms at a similar pace so people actually do buy them it's kind of amazing that given how many different versions of cards have been produced since the inventions how well the invention frame love has held up so uh, you'd be surprised to hear that I had a couple extra copies of this that I ended up buy listing uh, to an Asian vendor, you know, in Vegas. And the cash buy list price I got on my Masterpiece Lotus Petals was 375 cash, 
which is a very hefty number and very high, uh, what I'll call buy list uh, percentage uh, than you would expect. And I got in on those. Yeah, you know, because if you, if you sell it yeah. for 500 on eBay or TCG Player, you go you walk away with 425 or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're paying a $50 convenience fee to have the sale instantaneously, which is completely reasonable. The... You know, this it, it is interesting given that my original calculations on inventions was that there was something like 20,000 in the world of each of them. Mm-hmm. So quite a few more of them produced, like by a factor of somewhere between five to ten times more inventions produced than you get of a lot of things like confetti foils. And to the point where at... You know, six months out from release, invention lotus petals were all over the place, right? It it wasn't, they were never in scarce supply for the first three to six months. It was only once the the soul ring started to dry up and people started to get an inkling of what was going on that then there was a stampede for the doors on the rest of them. So, yeah, I, I think this lotus petal call makes sense given the comparison between the two versions in question. I wouldn't be in a rush to unload invention versions because they, they inventions seem to be uh, more durable in terms of fan support. But, yeah, the FTVs, nobody loves the FTV treatment, so that's that's an easy breezy one. Moving on over to the weekly topics, they dropped all sorts of product knowledge on us at Vegas Uh Kind of overwhelming, really, but that's mm-hmm. been par for the course for years now, so no biggie. They showed us a whole bunch of previews for the Lost Caverns of Ixalan, the next standard set that comes out in, I think, mid-November, if I'm not mistaken. They showed us uh, Kellen, Daring Traveler. This is the main character they're trying to set up in the big big narrative arc uh, that started in Wilds of Eldraine. And this time, instead of being a white-red card, he is a white-green card. Still adventures on some of these Ixalan cards. I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. It, it's like they are trying to connect the standard sets mechanically instead of narratively. Or with a greater focus on connecting them mechanically. Um, because who knows what adventure cards will be activated by additional adventure-related cards in Ixalan. You, know, you, got, you kind of have to look at it as a split set with Wilds of Eldraine if there's a lot of that going on, where, you know, may, maybe there's going to be a lot more synergy than you might imagine. This is a 2-3. It has an adventure called Journey On. You create X map tokens, where X is 1 plus the number of opponents who control an artifact. But I don't think they told us what a map token is. I don't think so. I was reading up on refreshing my memory on this particular announcement, and we have yet to find out. I assume it's some type of land-based mechanic. Well, it seems natural, given we're talking, it's a map, and we're on Ixalan, and it's like a journey to the center of the Earth type scenario. But, uh, you know, well, I, I guess we'll find out. Maybe they're tokens that sack for three and let you go search up a basic land? Kind of like expedition mapish, you know, you're a, or well, no, Could the, something like that. Mm-hmm. But they can only go get basics. Yep. Interesting. Possibly. So, I mean, the thing about that is, it makes cards like doubling season, parallel lives, etc., anything that that triggers off token presence. The more of these token types that they introduce, we we just got all the rolls, the aura tokens in wilds of eldraine now if they're gonna give us map tokens 
you got to be looking hard at the cards that interact. And also considering that things like Academy Manufacturer will eventually get power creeped out because they'll have to print one that includes the, the other stuff. <laughs> yep. Well, not to mention that we just got bombarded by food tokens, right? Um, in yeah. Lord of the Rings. So, I mean, I think tokens... Plus wilds. Yeah, plus wilds. I mean, it, it's just token mania, I feel like, nowadays with commander decks at each set. So, uh, I think token doublers are just a mainstay of just magic nowadays. So, Kellen's backside is a 2-3 human fairy scout for one and a white. Whenever Kellen attacks, reveal the top card of your library. If it's a creature card with mana value 3 or less, put it into your hand. Otherwise, you can put it in your graveyard. That's a pretty solid aggro card. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nothing quite like digging up a friend. Yeah. They also showed us Hwatli, Poet of Unity, confirming that Hwatli has lost her spark, along with the majority of the other Planeswalkers. Two and a green for a 2-3 human warrior bard. <laughs> When Hwatli, Poet of Unity, enters the battlefield, search your library for a basic land card, reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle. Three, red, white, red, white, exile Hwatli, then return her to the battlefield, transformed under her owner's control, activate only as a sorcery, and her backside is Roar of the Fifth People, which looks like it's going to be in every dinosaur deck from here to eternity. It's a four-stage saga. The first turn, you create two 3-3 green dinosaur creature tokens. The second turn... Uh, all your creatures get tap for red, green, white. Third turn, search your library for a dinosaur card, reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle. And then the fourth turn, dinosaurs you control gain double strike and trample until end of turn. Okay, that is a lot going on. <laughs> That's quite quite the value train in the dinosaur decks. Definitely. And it's, and it's tricky in EDH because nobody's going to want to kill a 2-3. They'll figure maybe they'll deal with the roar down the road, right, before you get to the nasty part. So I, I, I think that, you know, it's narrow in the in the sense that it's gonna be dinosaur decks only, but there's also probably gonna get a lot be a lot of dinosaur decks built this fall. They showed us Osier Axonil Deepest Might. Uh, there's a new set of gods coming in Ixalan, and this was the one they chose to show off. Two and two red for a four four god with trample. It does not have indestructible. Instead, if a red source you control would deal an amount of non-combat damage less than Ogre's power to an opponent, that source deals damage equal to Ogre's power instead. Oh, that's nasty. <laughs> if you ping an opponent for one, they take four, which means it's absolutely going in my Gearson deck where it can be a backup commander. And when it dies, you return it to the battlefield tapped and transformed. And the backside of this thing is Temple of Power. It's a land. Taps are red. Or for three, two and a red, you can tap it, then transform it back into Ogier. And activate only if red sources you control dealt at least four, damage, four or more non-combat damage this turn and only as a sorcery. So you can basically... If they kill Ogre, he doesn't have Indestructible, but he turns into this temple, and you can turn him back by dealing four damage, which presumably in the decks that want to use him will be pretty straightforward. 
I think this card has a lot of potential, especially if you play various kinds of ping, burn type decks, because there are so many red cards, like the rolling vortexes of the world, that just hit for one, right? And if you have Ogre out, you're, you're hitting people for four. That's crazy. I mean, like in Commander, like in one turn cycle, each of your opponents takes four, if, especially if something triggers on upkeep or whatever else, you know, that, that you have, whatever nonsense you have. I mean, and especially if you can pair this with something like i don't know a city on fire fairy emancipation like you've <laughs> i'm already imagining all the different potentials with this yeah and there's a whole bunch of red cards like this that have been printed in the last year so we're really hitting critical mass on the double and triple effects for, mm. especially for non-combat damage and it's cute that you can if you're using sack outlets in in your red decks that are using ogre then you can help him dodge a wrath and set him up to come back later if he's your commander, you're certainly going to be interested in that. You might even use one of your own burn spells to put him onto the backside to get him back later. A very nice card design on this one. They also showed us a new version of Galta, Stampede Tyrant, 3 triple green for a 12-12 trample. And when it enters the battlefield, put any number of creature cards from your hand onto the battlefield. <laughs> Nothing like a one-sided show-and-tell. Yeah, I mean, I... we know this is a dinosaur th- does dinosaur what i'll call plane we know there's gonna be a lot of dinosaur decks and there's gonna be very very large creatures and i'm just gonna imagine people doing all kinds of interesting things to cheat galta out and just slam down all the craziness you know in their hands so uh, this is gonna this is gonna be a, a very what i'll call frequent edh presence i can kind of feel it already <laughs> black green x decks are just gonna dump them to the yard reanimate them and then dump their hand. Mm-hmm. Hope you guys have a sweeper. Because <laughs> that could happen on turn two or three. Yeah. And yeah, the, the flicker decks. It's it's an it's an ETB, not an on-cast. So flickering him works. Oh, gross. Absolutely very gross. gross. Very, very gross. Skull Spore Nexus they showed us. Six double green for a legendary artifact. This spell costs X less to cast, where X is the greatest power among creatures you control. So that was actually, that was the ability on the last version of Gelter, right? Mm-hmm. And whenever one or more non-token creatures you control die, create a green fungus dinosaur creature token with base power and toughness equal to the total power of those creatures. So if a 4-4 four, four dies, you get a 4-4. Four, four. If... All If your board gets swept and it was 14 power, you get a 14-14. And then at the bottom of this thing, just for kicks, two tap, double target power until end of turn. So they sweep the board, they leave a 14-14, everything else is gone, and then it's a 28-28 when it attacks next turn. Yeah, I had to read this card <laughs> twice because I thought that the first ability was already pretty good and i'm like why did they staple the power doubler you know on top of it it just seems like yeah it is a very very nasty what i'll call potential game ender that lurks on the field because you're cranking out these tokens every time you wipe and it just gets bigger you, you, you can juice it so it this there is, i think again this is going to see a lot of play in edh because we know what green stompy decks like to do and they like nothing more than being able to crank out an, a big fungus dinosaur <laughs> you know to onto the field they also showed us the full art basics for Ixalan. really hard to get people's engines revved up about these things no matter how nice they are these days but these are pretty good 
I mean, mm-hmm. I don't see me sliding these into decks over the other 10 options I already have that I prefer. But I don't hate these. They, they are a unique look. Uh, I think if I was art directing these, I would have taken the... Maybe gone with the symbol centered at the bottom and with with just a faint outline for it instead of the block square, rounded square behind it. And I would definitely have gotten rid of mountain basic land. I'm just of the opinion that with so little focus on attracting new players, you can make the cues in terms of which basics are which very subtle indeed. And, and people will figure it out. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the text because I feel like it detracts actually from the art. I think if you just yeah. had the symbol, that's more than sufficient for people to know what, yeah. that, what it is. I, I, I totally agree. Especially given that like in Lorcana, everybody's just flipping their cards over and putting them in the inkwell. <laughs> like where it's just it's just completely a non-issue because you don't really need to worry about on-table readability in the slightest. They also revealed that there are a whole bunch of Jurassic Park cards as a subset here. We had heard about this before, but we hadn't seen samples. And one of them was Welcome to dot, 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 uh, Jurassic Park on the backside. So the front side is a saga. For each opponent, up to one target non-creature artifact they control becomes a 0-4 wall artifact creature with defender for as long as you control the saga. So you can turn somebody's good artifact into just a wall. And then on the second turn, you create a 3-3 green dinosaur creature token with trample. It gains haste. On the third turn, you destroy all walls. So you get around to destroying that artifact eventually if they haven't already blocked with it. And you can exile the saga, then return it to the battlefield transformed. The backside is tap and add green for each dinosaur you control. So the dinosaur decks can run Cradle and Dino Cradle now. Mm-hmm. And then each, on top of that, Jurassic Park has each dinosaur card in your graveyard has escape, which basically means they can... Dino uh, Breach is what I'm going to call it. <laughs> yeah. Like the, the escape cost is equal to the card's mana cost plus plus exile three other cards from your graveyard. So if you have a six casting cost dinosaur, you got to exile three cards from your yard, and then you can just pay its casting cost to get it back in play. I mean, as with Watley, these are just auto-includes in the dino builds from here till eternity, because nobody's going to turn down a second cradle. Or a creature underworld breach, which this is. <laughs> they showed us Ian Malcolm, Chaotician. So <laughs> have you completely jumped the shark when your game includes a picture of jeff goldblum in it (laughs) one blue red for a 2-2 human scientist whenever a player draws their second card each turn that player exiles the top card of their library during each player's turn that player may cast a spell from among the cards they don't own exiled with ian malcolm and mana of any type can be spent to cast it so everybody gets to cast extra cards yep so it's group huggy. Yep. Yeah. I mean, somebody will figure out something clever to do with this, but it won't be B. Indominus Rex Alpha, big old dinosaur mutant, 6-6 six, six for one and blue-black, blue-black, green, green. So hybrid mana in this set. As an Indominus Rex Alpha enters the battlefield, discard any number of creature cards. It enters with a flying counter. If it was flying, do the same for first strike, double strike, death touch, hexproof, haste, indestructible, lifelink, Menace, Reach, Trample, and Vigilance. And when Rex enters the battlefield, draw a card for each counter on it. 
So this is pretty nasty. Mm-hmm. You can throw away a bunch of smaller dinosaurs with abilities that you want to put on Rex and then immediately draw that many cards. So there's not really that much downside. And since it's a black card, maybe you want to be filling your yard anyway. Like you could build a Dino Moldrotha deck, for instance. And James, if you have Jurassic Park, you can escape them too. Why not? <laughs> oh yeah, that that's extra special synergies. So they're pushing the dinosaurs real hard. I, I will not be surprised to see a dinosaur deck float up into the top five come November. That seems uh, like a likely occurrence. They also showed off a new kind of subset include designation. So instead of just saying that there are, like, for instance, Realms and Relics in Lord of the Rings, they're now saying that there is a designation called Special Guest, which sounds like just a carte blanche ticket for Reprints. wizards to just... To just put whatever they think they need to put in the set to sell the set. <laughs> and in this case, they showed us off a very, very nice Lord of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. That has to be the default. The art's gorgeous. Absolutely. The color uh, and line work is fantastic. And then Mana Crypt, which was on my radar as something that was probably going to get reprinted in the next six months, given it was one of the pricier edh cards that hadn't had a reprint for a little while i think the last official print was double masters that's right is that right that's right double masters so that's so that's three years ago mm-hmm. three years and so there's a whole bunch of versions of the mana crypt that are going to be available it comes in a bunch of different neon colors which don't really appeal to me to be honest they're also doing that with Cavern of Souls, which is actually in the set proper. So that one's not a special guest card. The Mana Crypt is obviously not in standard. But Cavern of Souls is being printed into standard, which means it's being printed into Pioneer. Mm-hmm. Which is certainly relevant. The other big por- portion of the special cards that'll be in the Collector Boosters, presumably for Ixalan, is something called Treasure Trove, which I'm reading as Inventions, right? Like this sounds like it's a bunch of artifacts. Yep. So the one they showed off is a really nice art on a coercive portal reprint. And I would imagine any and all artifacts that we didn't get in the Brothers War subset last year are now on the table to get included here. <laughs> uh, so if you're holding artifacts as specs, might be a good time to start unloading. I'll say this about the Mana Crypts. The very, the very, very rare ones, and there, there's so many colors here. There's a green one, a red one, a yellow one, a blue one, a purple one and a green one so obviously they're doing the hidetsugu thing but with a much better card Mm -hmm. the rarest of them will be worth a bunch of money just like the soul rings were with lord of the rings like the human dwarf elf versions but i'm not a huge fan of this art it's fine but it's not better than existing art certainly not better than masterpiece mana crypt i mean double masters you know the I think the showcase version's there. You know, the box topper version's there is definitely better too. I, I think this is cool, and I think um reprint is needed because mana crypts are pushing up there in terms of price. But this won't be my preferred version, not by a country mile. I mean, they've used reused the same art many times. The art that they used for the Double Masters borderless it was a Ron Spencer piece. I wasn't a massive fan of it, but it's fine. Uh, those foils are $272. So th- this is a welcome addition, but I think it's kind of a no-brainer that the invention version that's currently going for 800 on TCG Player is still the preferred. Mm-hmm. And if I had to choose a backup, I would say the Judge Foil Mana Crypt art, which has been reused 
ever since is is also superior. Definitely. All right. They also showed us a bunch of stuff for the October secret layer reveals. There are a whole bunch of uh, new October super drop uh, secret layers that were shown off, and they include some pretty sexy stuff. The first one is uh, Maggie Villeneuve Princess Bride secret layer that looks like an absolute must own for collectors. Mm-hmm. I think there. I I think it's called the Spooky Drop because I think it's a themed around Halloween, right, James? And uh, yeah, I think the Princess Bride art is quite stunning, and um, no complaints about that for sure. Some of the most beautiful art we've seen on Secret Layers, and for a very beloved fantasy movie that again, everybody watched in the '80s, everybody shows their kids these days. Wesley Dread Pirate Roberts is Finn the Fangbearer. Buttercup Provincial Princess is Sisse Weatherlight Captain. Fezzik Rhyming Giant is Brian uh, Brian Stout Arm. Anigo Avenging Swordsman is Samet Voice of Descent. Vizini Criminal Mastermind is Baral Chief of Compliance. Miracle Max Unemployed is Marquesa the Black Rose. Rodents of Unusual Size is Pack Rat. Battle of Wits is just Battle of Wits, mm-hmm. and Silence is Silence. Thematically nailed it. The art, stunning. Mm-hmm. This is one of the few times where I don't think it actually matters at all what cards are involved here. I would agree with that. I think this is one where the, the unique art to the Secret Lair will carry the day. The silence is for sure going to be the preferred silence forever. Mm-hmm. The Pack Rat, they're never going to make one that looks better than that. And the Baral, I mean, you're just, if you've seen the movie, you will never not want to use this version of Baral with the inconceivable quote on it. So that one looks like an absolute slam dunk to me because the worst case scenario if you buy one is that you get stuck with it yourself, which is not really a downside. They're also doing one of my most beloved properties of all time, the Evil Dead. Uh, (laughs) I am an Evil Dead fan from way back in the day when they were making movies on a shoestring budget i watched the the latest one with with my uh wife recently who's a big old scaredy cat and makes horror movies twice as fun because she's so i can just look out of the corner of my eye and see her tensing up and it's just the best (laughs) so to see them do ash destined survivor as pure steel paladin nobi's incantation as zombie apocalypse cabin of the dead is a field of the dead reprint mm-hmm. linda kandarian queen as Verena lich queen a deck i keep i was meaning to build and now i have an awesome set of cards to build it with and then destroy the dead vanquish the horde uh reprint and a zombie token this one's a is also an automatic must buy and if i was playing a deck that was running four paladins i would buy four copies of this so i would imagine this will be quite popular Definitely. I think the crossover IP, the, the, I think the excitement around this, again, almost doesn't matter what cards underlie the art. People just want it. <laughs> the, the assumption here is the bonus card is probably going to be his chainsaw. I would hope so. So the question becomes which equipment that will represent. If it was Colossus Hammer, for instance, to be played alongside Pure Steel Paladin, uh, I'm sure nobody would be complaining. The other one they showed that will be huge for people that are into old school comic horror is a creep show themed set that's double sided. So this is kind of 
I put this on the level of the graphic design of the serial uh, secret layer from last year. This one's got Unholy Grotto, Noxious Ghoul, Zombie Master, Grim Grin, and Death Baron. And honestly, it doesn't, re- again, doesn't really matter. Because these just look so good. They're, they're, they just absolutely nailed the look and feel of these. They have little comics on them that were like custom made for this. These are absolute collector pieces. Like if you if you got this from Clug, you'd be paying like fifteen hundred dollars. Yep. And here you get to buy the whole thing for thirty bucks. So to to me, this is an absolute no brainer. Like all three of those secret layers look like are just buys to own. Like they're nailing the purpose of secret layer. Give me medium cards with amazing art that I can still find a way to play with, and I'll be happy. It's the whole notion that you feel like you're getting value out of it, right? You know, it's it's the right price point, and it's the right balance between value of cards and the unique treatment. So I completely agree with your assessment there. There's also an Angel's Drop that is Doctor Who themed, and th- th- there's basically a uh, alien race in Doctor Who called the Stone Angels, and their whole deal is that they look like statues if you're looking at them, and they can only attack you if you're not looking at them. So there's a bunch of like really cute episodes where like the character looks away and looks back and the like statue was like 10 feet closer and it's got like a much more scary look going on. So these are all based on that. There's Angel of Serenity, Angel of the Ruins, Restoration Angel, Sublime Archangel, and Blinding Angel. And this, on the other hand, I have, as much as I thought the concept of the episode I watched to get caught up on this was cute... Most of these angels are not super important, and I think that a lot of the people that are building Giada decks this year may find that these angels don't thematically make a lot of sense in their decks, because they're evil angels instead of good angels. I've built a Giada angel deck when it was first released, and very few of this selection of angels actually makes fit the in. List. Makes the list, correct. There are right. much more impactful angels to play in EDH. So I suspect this one's going to be a skip for me and for a lot of people as well. Uh, they showed off the Dalek lands. So these are sci-fi uh, Doctor Who themed versions of the lands from Kaladesh. Kind of a weird choice as a place to put these back out into the market. Botanical Sanctum, Inspiring Vantage, Blooming Marsh, Spire Bluff Canal, and Concealed Courtyard didn't even really need the reprint. And now I'm wondering whether they're also going to be in a standard set in the next year. <laughs> and you'll get multiple versions that are completely unnecessary that'll drive these down to be as cheap as pain lands yeah i mean the this is an interesting reprint but i don't care particularly for the art and i know this might sound blasphemous to some of the pro traders but i'm not a doctor who fan by any stretch of the imagination so this is a skip for me I think the one where the Daleks are just kind of like walking in sequence along the riverbank <laughs> in London is amusing. So I think in a blue-red deck, I might use that one, especially if it was artifact-themed like Brea or something. But other, other than that, I, I'm not dying for space-themed magic cards, to be honest. They also have a new version of the Pixel Lands. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember if Pixel Lands were a flop last time. I know I said they would be. They were not, the... actually. Um, I bought quite a few. I think the reason they weren't is they were the snow-covered lands, which obviously yes. have, um, yes, yes, yes. That have uh, I think, their own appeal and their own utility. And, um, yeah, and I actually ended up doing quite well with them because uh, over time, uh, the supply 
supply dried up and the demand is there and I've actually managed to sell through most of mine at a, a small profit, nothing crazy. So um, there is definitely a demand for this treatment. Interesting. So I would probably steer, steer clear of this this time as well, but there may well be a market for it, as you said. Um, they also showed us something called the Sume E-Lands, I think I'm pronouncing that close to correctly, which is basically Japanese ink painting style lands, plains, islands, swamp, mountain, forest, as you'd imagine. These are nice from an artistic perspective, but again, I don't see this being, you know, making its way into my decks, and I think I will skip this one as well. Mm-hmm. We're just inundated with basics is the issue, and it's they're lovely. I don't think there's anything to say but that they're lovely, but there's just way too much competition, <laughs> you know, for basics. All right, just to wrap things up, we'll just double, double back on our comments earlier about the Lord of the Ring Increludes. So we're getting the scene boxes that have a bunch of new cards. It was confirmed at Vegas, I believe, that the those cards are not going to be modern legal. So, for instance, there was like a Legolas card that looked like it was going to be an, a lock to put Infect back on the map because it did a bunch of busted things for like one green mana. But that's not going to be available in mm-hmm. modern. So they're legacy EDH only, which certainly limits the upside for these scene cards. The cards themselves can also be found in uh, the collector boosters. So I think the foil borderless is in the scene boxes and non-foil borderless and surge foil is in the uh, boosters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The realm and relics surge foils are being reprinted at a much higher drop rate the foil extended arts are are being not reprinted strictly but still challenging the value thereof because they're getting a surge foil version which is ostensibly better everything in the set is getting this kind of black border with a old-timey scroll and a kind of patina filter over top of the standard art so i thought every card in the set was getting new new art to help justify this, but they're just going with a filter plus a different border. Uh, it, it's not unclear to me whether we're getting many new versions of Orcish Bowmasters, for instance. Mm-hmm. It looks to me like we might just be getting the showcase foils, which means that the borderless foils might actually still have some play to them since they're significantly better than those. Yeah, I think, I think that's I, th- I think that's correct. Because I don't, I don't recall seeing a treatment that made sense to apply to Bowmasters. That sounds about right. I don't think we know exactly yet if it's going to come back. I'd be surprised if it did. You know, I, It just seems like a natural place for them to show up. But, think, but then again, stranger things have happened. Because the other, the other thing they showed off was uh, that there's another set of cards that are with art by the Hildebrand brothers, including stuff like Pact of Negation, Mm -hmm. that is essentially a new Realms and Relics. And that's why, in conversation with the other pro traders, it was so inexplicable to everybody that they're strictly reprinting the box topper surge foils because you didn't need Realms and Relics. Nope. They're already doing the, um, the, like druggy movie poster vibe from the mid late 70s thing for 20 mythics i believe and that art looks incredible 
you've got the new Hildebrandt cards. You've got the new showcase treatment on everything from Bowmasters to the One Ring. You've got the scene cards. And there's a bunch of jumpstart cards in the Collector Boosters as well. So we didn't need Realms and Relics. Now, if, if they wanted to do Realms and Relics serials like they did here with the double silver foil or whatever it is, or the, sorry, the double uh, rainbow foil, then that makes perfect sense to me. Because then you're just, you're, you're ratcheting things up. Mm-hmm. You're saying these other surge foils were really hard to find, and these are really, really hard to find. And then nobody would really complain, because a more rare thing isn't going to undermine the purchasing decision you made in July. But they went completely the other direction. And that just pulls the rug out in a way that, from their perspective, I'm sure executives are saying internally, they're going to buy it anyway. But the, the problem with they're going to buy it anyway is you never know, especially given that we know that their data collection is weak. In a situation where your data collection is weak, you never know for sure how many sales you missed because you didn't do it a different way. And if the game takes a nose, you know, a slow nose dive over the next few years on the collector front because people are less willing to purchase those kinds of things because of these bad experiences, then it's going to, they can write that ship. There are ways to do it. They can make an announcement and say nothing gets reprinted. If something gets printed, it doesn't get reprinted again for two years or three years or whatever. If they just put a, drew a line in the sand and gave people an expectation, then I think the market would adjust cleanly to that. But when it's very haphazard, people get spooked. And it's funny because I've been playing a bunch more uh, Wilds of Eldraine draft this week. And I'm starting to understand why they wanted to put things like Parallel Lives and Doubling Season in the subset, despite the fact that they had been claimed in other sets. I, I think it is, in fact, plausible that they weren't even thinking about that because they were just thinking about how it was had cute interactions with the role tokens and the token creatures in the, in the limited environment. But you have to somebody has to be in charge of looking at the broader ramifications of those decisions because they can claim and must claim in public that they don't consider the secondary market. But internally, not considering the secondary market is shooting themselves in the foot unnecessarily. It's an unforced error. I really don't understand the Realms and Relics reprint here. Uh, I don't know if it's lack of coordination, incompetence, poor data gathering, whatever it is. Just, uh, I can't, I just cannot rationalize it because these two products are inextricably linked, right? The original Lord of the Rings set earlier this year and then this holiday release. And it, and if you go onto any forum, you know, recognizing that social media is necessarily the healthiest place when it comes to MTG, but people are really taken aback by, I think, what has happened with this particular reprint because, to your point, James, it just wasn't needed, right? It's just, why go there when you had so much other material to work with and you could have just pushed up the rarity? It's like, why did you bother introducing that particular reprint when... Because it undermines trust. It really undermines people's expectations. And now I think we find ourselves in a place even more so than before where it feels like anything's on the table and anything that is super rare in terms of a fancy treatment, you can't count on that being, I think, reliable. And that's just really unhealthy. Setting aside secondary market values, I think it dissuades people from wanting to buy more premium product because you feel like that value can be taken away at any moment. Well, and the thing is that 
they went back, they're going back to the well on a set six months later. So it's their latest attempt at what they tried to do with Double Feature. Mm-hmm. They clearly want to mine their internal design work for greater profit. Mm-hmm. We know that they are a profit-seeking animal and that they are inevitably going to do that. But they can do it smarter and everybody wins, right? Like, you can put me in a room with this final product composition and within five minutes I will fix it for you. Correct. Right? There's And, and a lot of, you know... Uh, sales managers at various big vendors would feel the same that listen just talk to us for five minutes and we can tweak this product for you you're going to sell just as much of it if not more because of the the lack of loss of goodwill leading to greater sales there's plenty of reasons to buy this set that's my bottom line is that they didn't need it they they found a bunch of other ways to make it interesting like this poster art aragorn the united the the Galadriel, the Gandalf, the Ceremony of Many Colors, the the uh, Mount Doom. These are going to be the default standard versions of these cards. So one-upping yourself six months later is fine. You know, that's it's not the best from the MTG Finance perspective, but that's not the only thing that matters. You know, the, the, the ultimately, the overall market response to the product is what matters most, not just the people that are trying to speculate. Even the speculators understand that. But... It's not like they were out of ideas. <laughs> In fact, I would argue that the product composition of the holiday release is overly complicated and has too many things going on, probably because they were scared that they couldn't, that it was going to be another double feature. The problem is, just by that one bad story circulating about the surge foils, even though many Magic players probably don't even own any, it's going to hurt sales a little bit. And they're going to have trouble measuring the impact of that that goodwill loss, and they're going to have trouble tracking it set to set over time. And one of the one of the overarching problems is that part of that bad data collection is the Lord of the Rings product on the whole will still have done so so well this year that I suspect that whether or not we're plus minus five percent on revenue and profit this year for Magic, they did just fine, right? Like it feels like a strong year. Is it as strong as the year before? Won't know that till I see the Q4 results, you know, March of next year or whatever. But, you know, they're not going to be down 20%. And they're probably not going to be up 20%. But the Lord of the Rings thing, the hunt for the one ring was a big, big seller. And I'm worried that they're not going to get the right message when the holiday release doesn't sell as well. Because they're probably were already saying to themselves, it's not going to sell as well. How do we get it to sell? And they think by re-including the surge foils that they're helping it sell, but that's unclear. You know, is the, is, is the higher drop rate likely to lead to more sales than the negative story of them double printing something at a much higher rate? I don't think so. I, I think there's going to people, I think the people that were done with Lord of the Rings that have kind of already burned whatever pocket money they were willing to burn on the, these cards searching for the one ring and we're out no matter what are still going to be out and the the people like you and i the whales that are willing to throw money at this game when it looks amazing are are just going to have a bitter taste that might lead to purchasing less i think that's exactly where i am with this product i love some of the art i love some of the treatments i am gonna buy some but i can't say i approve of all the choices 
it's an own goal. It's an unforced error. I, I don't know, you know, what they were thinking. It's just, there was, again, there was just so much that, there was so much that could have been done here that wasn't done, and instead they made this decision. And I think it is going to have some impact. Again, hard to quantify, given how excited everyone is about Lord of the Rings, but based on just, you know, a sampling of just what pro traders have said, folks have said online, what people said in Vegas... It, I think it was just unnecessary because it just really cast a bit of a cloud over this product when, in fact, it could have been a second home run within the same year. The upside is uh, we know that exactly how many CBs there are. 125,000. Right. Because we know how many serials there are. And we know, there, therefore, that that is a significantly lower number than the amount of CBs that they published for the first release. So we have a sense of how many fewer of the the various uh, high-demand cards are actually coming into the market. And we'll be posting some additional analysis on that in the ProTrader uh, Best Ideas channel uh, over the next few days uh, to help people try to navigate around it. Um, but the bottom line is there's no way the holiday release will sell as well as the July release. It's an echo. It's not the initial explosion. So that aftershock is actually going to be, the, I think, the better of the two products to open, and there's going to be less of it around. So if I if I wanted to hold a Lord of the Rings CB for five years, given that the One Ring's already been found, no question in my mind that you're going to want the holiday release, not the first release. That makes sense to me. And yeah, I, I think that's a smart call in that uh, it's there's all kinds of interesting art in it. You still can pull a One Ring. There's still all kinds of goodies in there. And I think this has more potential as something sealed into the future. Uh, I'd also think that the scene boxes may be one of the few ancillary products, given that they have unique cards um, that are not fully exclusive, but the foil borderless versions are exclusive to the scene boxes. I could see the scene boxes being worth some pretty solid coin five, you know, three to five years out. And, you know, just on the Lord of the Rings name alone and ditto with things like the gift bundles. That, that were initially released. Ah, that was a busy week. Uh, where can folks find you online, my friend? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sloan Stranger. And uh, you can also read my occasional articles that I post onto mtgprice.com. And you folks can find me on Twitter at mtgcritic, as well as via my occasional articles on mtgprice.com and my constant haunting of the Pro Trader Discord. I think I've actually promised the Pro Traders that I'm going to have a new article out this Monday that's going to be entitled MTG Finance in the Reprint Era. So that we should be able to have a chat about that next week on cast. And uh, I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at www.coolstuffinc.com to save 5% of off your order and support this podcast. That brings us to the end of the MTG Fast Finance podcast. I really enjoyed our discussion today, James. Thanks for having me. 
Fantastic to have you on your first episode, Ted. Congratulations. And we will see you next week with Cliff still on vacation in Hawaii. And uh, all of you join us next week for another episode of MTG Fast Finance.